Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray together. O God, unveil your truth to us. In this be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. They were dark, dark, dark times. We call them the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages. The Bible was only available in Latin to the common people of Europe. It was the language of the scholar, of the elite, but not of the working man and woman, the common people. Man-made tradition and superstitions reigned. Philip Schaff, in the 19th century, in his History of the Christian Church, wrote this. The Reformation of the 16th century is, next to the introduction of Christianity, the greatest event in history. It marks the end of the Middle Ages and the beginning of modern times. He goes on. It gave a mighty impulse to every forward movement and made Protestantism the chief propelling force in the history of modern civilization. These are strong words. I believe them to be true. I believe he was right. It was the greatest event in history in terms of the church in the modern era since the time of the book of Acts. This was the greatest move of God in church history. To say it made Protestantism the chief propelling force in the history of modern civilization is to say this, without a knowledge of the Reformation, we're reading history with blinders on. A Latin phrase summing up the Reformation was this, post tenebrax lux, meaning after darkness, light. The Bible says in Psalm 119, verse 130, the entrance of God's word brings light. It gives understanding to the simple. And you can understand that where the word of God was not proclaimed, was not known by the people, all was darkness. The good news is that light dispels darkness. Darkness can be in a room for 10 minutes, 10 years, or a 1,000 years, and when light comes, darkness has to go. You don't have to vacuum it out. You don't need a whole team of people to get darkness out. Just turn the light on. And with the Word of God, when it was proclaimed, light dispelled darkness. The entrance of God's Word brings light. And darkness is the shared experience of a people without light. That was the case. Men were held captive by the powers of darkness. And now they were having to witness the light coming forth as the word of God came to the people. Dramatic change occurred. 
outside of the book of Acts, as I say, it was the greatest move of God in church history. Entire nations came under the sound of the gospel. The Reformation brought us the word of God in our own tongue. But the Reformers were not after something called revolution. They were after Reformation. They were not inventors. They were not seeking to be novel, bring something new, unheard of before. They were not wishing to bring new additions or new ideas. The book of Jeremiah, chapter 6, verse 16, says, Return to the ancient past. Go back to the ancient past. That was the message. Go back. As the Beatles said, get back to where you once belonged. That was the message. Get back, get back, get back to what was the true gospel. Instead of that, tradition and superstition blinded the people. One man put the history of the church in these terms. In the first century, we had Jesus and the apostles bringing us the New Testament, and that formed the church. It formed the church. From the second century to the fifth century, we have the, what was called the, uh, the era of the church fathers. And this conformed the church. They were seeking, at least that was the intent, to conform the church to the teaching of the Bible. From the 5th century to the 16th century, Rome ruled and deformed the church. They deformed the church by means of the gospel, the message of salvation. Something else was proclaimed. Additions were made to the scriptures, something unheard of in the Bible, the doctrine of purgatory, the treasury of merit, the idea that some saints had so had uh, the holiness required for their own salvation that the surplus was put in a treasury, a heavenly box, so to speak. And in that box were merits uh, given to that treasury box by people like Mary and the saints. They had done more than enough to achieve salvation and the surplus merit was put in the treasury of merit. And at the discretion of the Pope who had alone had the keys to the treasury, something called indulgences could be given whereby in purgatory, time off purgatory could be achieved by means of the Pope issuing indulgences, which were years off of purgatory. And it wouldn't be 10 years or 20 years, it's hundreds and even thousands of years, because the message of Rome was, after death, unless you are perfect, you go to a purging place, a place called purgatory, unheard of in our Bibles. But there, in purgatory, it looked like hell, it smelt like hell, but it wasn't hell, it was purgatory. You were getting purged of all the things that would cause a blemish to the soul. And then one Tuesday, I guess, a millennia from now, God would look down and see you having completed the purging process. Then and only then would he then say, I see perfection in you, I see righteousness in you, you have been purged completely. Now you are justified. Now you can enter heaven. That was indeed the case. I would despair uh, the, uh, that I would ever be part of that group in heaven that are truly saved. How foreign that is to the biblical gospel. He who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Plus 
nothing. Purgatory, treasure of merit, prayers to Mary, prayers to the saints, ecclesiology, which is the study of the church, where human tradition reigned, a pope, unheard of in the Bible, cardinals, bishops, priests, the doctrine of the mass, all of these things obscured Christ as the head of the church and the order in which he and the apostles, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had said, this is how the church is to function, with elders and with deacons. But again, the 16th century, the Protestant Reformation, was a reformation of the church, a call back to, let's go back to the original writings of Scripture. Along the way, God had used uh, providence, his providence, whereby the printing press of Gutenberg had been invented. And before that, if you were to have a Bible in your language, it would be that you were very, very rich. You'd have had to employ someone for nine to 12 months to sit at a desk and write out the Bible. That's the only way you could have a Bible. After the printing press was invented, that was no longer the case. And of course, God was behind all that. In addition to that, a man by the name of Desiderius Erasmus had translated the uh, original, uh, got hold of the original Greek of the New Testament, and for the first time people could be exposed to what God actually had said in the original language. That was just very, very quickly uh, utilized by people like Martin Luther. And going to the original language of the New Testament, they understood that words like justification didn't mean, as the Latin justificare meant, to make righteous. It meant to declare righteous. And there's all a difference in the world regarding the two. To be made righteous was a process. To be declared righteous was a courtroom word whereby God, on the basis of what has been done for that person in their place, by the death and by the life of Christ, a man and a woman, a boy and a girl, can believe on Jesus Christ and the life of Christ and the death of Christ counts for them. And on that basis, God declares them right in his sight, now and forever. What a message. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 tells us that we as Christians can look back at our justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace. Of course, this is in Greek what was amplified in the Old Testament under that word I'm sure we know. Shalom, the peace of the Hebrew Scriptures. And those who simply have faith Genuine faith in Jesus Christ are given peace with God on the basis of having been justified. The war's over. It's over. There's peace. Peace has broken out and it's not a temporary ceasefire. If you were to hear this week that there's been a peace that's brought forth now in the Middle East, you think, well, that's just for a 24-hour period. That's right. Till the rockets are launched again and the arrows and the bullets and the things that Harm men are then introduced again. That's not the case in our justification. We are justified and have peace with God now and forever because the war is over. What a message. Back to the original design. That's what the Reformation was all about, to reform the church back to its original message. 
Back to the Bible. That was the movement. A back to the Bible movement. Back to the original message. Back to the original language. Back to the original design. And in that, the removal of idol worship. This, this work of Reformation uh, continues in our own day. It wasn't one and done. It wasn't, it's all over. Reformation is always needed because of our tendency to drift. We drift away from the Scripture. We drift towards idolatry, and that remains a constant issue. One of the heart cries of the Reformation in Latin, uh, it translated into English, was this, the church reformed and always being reformed by the Word of God. There's always a need for reformation. And at King's Church, we want that to be the case, where the reformation continues. We're always reforming. We're always needed to, needing to read our Bibles and to come under the Bible and say, this is the standard, not me, not my thoughts, not what I like. We sing what he wants us to sing. We preach what he wants us to preach. Preach the word in season, out of season. And you might say, well, not everybody will like that. I know, but the sheep will. And God will. And that's important. It's the most important thing. If God is pleased, one man said, it doesn't matter who's displeased. If men are displeased, if God is displeased, it doesn't matter who's pleased. We want to please Him. The spark of the Reformation took place, though there were a number of ingredients that caused it to be the case. We won't get into all of that. But on October the 31st, 1517, a great day to be born. Great day to celebrate the fact that in church history, uh, a really unknown man at that time, in an unknown place, just a dot on the map in Germany, a little town called Wittenberg, Germany, Martin Luther walked to the church, and not as a real act of defiance, it was on a notice board on the church uh, door, uh, the castle church at Wittenberg, he nailed the 95 Thesis to that door, and he did it in Latin. That shows us he was not trying to spark a revolution or even cause a reformation. He wanted a debate amongst the scholars. Why? Something grievous was taking place. We'll come back to that. Martin Luther was born in the year 1483 in a place called Eisleben, Germany. Later on, he would die in that same town. His father, Hans, was a very successful Miner, He owned a mine, at least one, and he owned a mining business. And he had dreams for his son that his son would become a lawyer and not have to go down the mine. Martin Luther was a brilliant student and excelled in his studies. And uh, yet there was, jumping ahead, uh, something of a, how would I say it? A thin line between him being sane and insane regarding his guilt. Most of us are able to put from our minds that which Luther was unable to do. We think, well, I'm not that bad. And yet Luther realized he was that bad and God was this heavenly judge and he was tormented over his sin. Tormented, absolutely tormented. My reading of church history is that without the intervention of God and the gospel, he would have been an insane man. But God had other ideas and brought him the gospel. But in the year 1505, he was traveling and he was at a place called Stottenheim in Germany where a thunderstorm erupted and a lightning flash terrorized Luther. It struck 
just very, very close to him and he thought he would die. He thought it was all over. God was this angry judge and was about to kill him. And in that moment, he cried out something that probably you and I wouldn't do, but he cried out these words. Save me, Saint Anne, and I will become a monk. Is that what would have occurred to you to say? I'm not sure I would have said that. Why Saint Anne? Well, Saint Anne was the patron saint of miners. Luther, coming from a minor mining family, turned to what he knew. And this was true of everyone in that day. No one, hear this, no one prayed directly to God. You couldn't. You had to go up the chain. And so you talked to Saint Anne, who would pass it up the line, and eventually to Mary, because, you know, the, the Lord Jesus, he's kind of hostile. He's a savior, but he's kind of hostile. But he can't refuse his mother. That was the idea. You can't pray to God directly. And so it was natural. He'd never prayed to God, and it was natural for him to call out to Saint Anne, Saint Anne, come to my rescue. Save me from this, and I'll become a monk. That's something of a vow. Well, his life was spared, and two weeks later, true to his vow, he joined a very austere, rigorous monastery, knocked on the door and became a monk, much to the anger of his father Hans. You can imagine, he wanted him to be a lawyer. He didn't want him to be this monk where he would make nothing of his life. Yeah, right. Save me, I'll become a monk. He joined an Augustinian monastery that was probably the most rigorous and disciplined. He writes this, these are Luther's words, When I was a monk, I wearied myself greatly for almost 15 years with the daily sacrifice, tortured myself with fastings, vigils, prayers, and other very rigorous works I earnestly thought to acquire righteousness by my works. And on another occasion, he wrote these words, I almost fasted myself to death, for again and again I went for three days without taking a drop of water or a morsel of food. I was very serious about it. He was so serious that in the confessional booth in the monastery where you go in and you talk about your sins to a priest, he would often be in there for hours, one hour, two hours, three hours. It's been recorded that there were times when he was four to six hours in the confessional booth. Now, that would be something in itself. But realize he's only confessing the sins of the previous 24 hours. Imagine being the priest, seeing him coming. Oh no, he's here again. And at the end of all this, he would be asked to say his Hail Marys and whatever the thing was he was asked to do. And the priest would say, Te absolve, or Te absolvo, I absolve you. And he had peace for just a moment. And he got back to his cell at the monastery. And he remembered something he did not confess to the priest. And all the peace had gone. He was tormented, absolutely tormented. Some people thought that he was trying to get out of his work in the monastery by spending so much time in the confessional booth. That wasn't the case. His, uh, his flaws were cleaner than anyone else. He, he really was a fastidious student and very good monk. He writes these words, I was a good monk and I kept the rules of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. 
All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. I had kept on any longer. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading another work. He would self-flagellate. He would take a whip and whip himself. He would sleep outside in the winter without any covering. He would do things to his body in hope that it would bring forth holiness. He writes these words, I tortured myself with prayer, fasting, vigils, and freezing. The frost alone might have killed me. What else did I seek by doing this but God, who was supposed to note my strict observance of the monastic order and my austere life? I constantly walked in a dream and lived in real idolatry, for I did not believe in Christ. I regarded, only, I regarded him only as a severe and terrible judge, portrayed as seated on a rainbow. He visited Rome. He was asked by the monastery to be a representative of the monastery and traveled to Rome. And while there, he saw what would be described as a cesspool of iniquity. The priests were uh, openly going off with prostitutes. The Pope himself certainly was not a holy man at all. He saw uh, terrible things, and this only burdened his soul. There's something there in Rome called the Sacred Steps, taken from Jerusalem and reassembled in Rome. These were the steps that Jesus would have stood on at his trial under Pontius Pilate. And as you mount those steps, as you go up on those steps, on your hands and knees, and on every stair you pray a, uh, an Our Father, a Hail Mary, as you ascend those steps and get to the top, you are given an indulgence, many, many years of purgatory. But it only can be for dead people. And so he was actually uh, very sad that his mother and father were still alive, but his grandparents were supposedly the beneficiaries of this. As he got to the top, disillusion came upon Luther's soul, and he said these words, who knows if this is true. Indulgences, time off suffering in purgatory. By the way, those steps are still in place in Rome today. Um, because of the enormous amount of religious pilgrims who visit those steps and do the same thing, getting the indulgences, which are still in place, a second stairway has been erected for the pilgrims. Isn't that nice? And that will provide, as the sign says, the exact same indulgence as the original steps. Nothing's changed in Rome. In the services, if you went to any service in Europe, it would not be understood unless you understood Latin. Latin services. And priests who were not well trained were taking hold of the services. And there's a time in that service where something blasphemous takes place, as it does today, called the Mass, where on an altar, a stone altar, the priest turns his back on the congregation and sacrifices Christ again on the altar. An unbloodied sacrifice, but the very blood and body of Christ is re-sacrificed in that manner. Luther celebrated his first Mass as a priest and he was awestruck at the thought that he was now able, by his declaration, to make the bread 
and the wine, the literal body and blood of Christ. And he froze at the moment, almost fainting with fear. He said, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, who am I that I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? For I'm dust and ashes and full of sin, and I'm speaking to the living, eternal, and true God. The decree of the priest is to bring Christ down into the bread and the cup by the use of the Latin phrase, hoc est corpus meum. And so busy were the priests with all of their very quick services, almost like drive-through services. They wanted it over very, very quickly and not being very well trained. They weren't saying hoc est corpus meum, they were saying hocus pocus. That's the original of why you hear those words in our tongue, hocus pocus. That's where it comes from. It was hocus pocus. It was the devil's scheme. Well, Rome needed to build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. They needed the finances. And up steps a man called Johann Tetzel, who was a salesman par excellence. He was commissioned by Rome, and he was superb in his selling. He would walk into the center of town in a very dramatic manner with the papal coat of arms and a bull of indulgence, borne aloft on a gold-embroidered velvet cushion. A cross was set up in the marketplace, and Tetzel spoke much about hell, purgatory, and heaven. He appealed to the consciences of the masses in Germany, pointing out that they could aid their deceased parents in purgatory just for one night. God will remove all of their sins if they will give big in the offering. He had a phrase, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. The words of Tetzel again, do you not hear the voice of your wailing dead parents and others who say, have mercy upon me, have mercy upon me because we're in severe punishment and pain. For this, you could redeem us with a small arms and yet you do not want to do so. Open your ears. As the father says to the son and the mother to the daughter, we created you, fed you, cared for you and left you our temporal goods. Why are you so cruel and harsh that you do not want to save us though it only takes so little? You let us lie in flames so that only slowly do we come to the promised glory. Luther heard about this, especially that phrase, when the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs and that was it. That's what sparked Luther. By his own admission, Luther was a loyal son of Rome at this point, and he was not yet a converted man. If you read through his 95 theses, which were 95 ideas he wanted to debate, there was nothing of the way of justification in any of it. It was about indulgences. And he wanted to aid the well-being of the church. If you read some of those theses, number one, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. Number two, this word repentance cannot be understood to mean sacramental penance, confession and satisfaction, which is administered by the priest. He goes on, and I encourage you to read those 95 theses, but loyal, loyal, loyal was Luther at this point. He wanted theological debate. He wanted that debate. Never happened. 
Fast forward to the year 1519, according to Luther. He was uh, a professor at Wittenberg and was asked to teach the Psalms. And he was reading an obscure essay by St. Augustine. He was an Augustinian monk, so he would often read one of his essays. And he was reading Romans chapter 1, verse 17. We're going to come to it in a moment. In fact, let's go to Romans chapter 1, verse 1. I do want to say something about the verses already quoted. Verse 1, Paul, a servant or a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And in the next few verses, that gospel is outlined. But I want to make mention of the fact that there's one word in that first verse that is very, very powerful, very, very poignant, but it often goes unnoticed. I'm very grateful to a Greek scholar who brought this out, and I've never forgotten it. It's not the word Christ, it's not the word Jesus, it's not the word apostle, it's not the word gospel, it's not the word God. So what is it? It's the word of. Because the word of could mean the gospel about God, the gospel of God, the message about God. But the word of there in the original means of in the sense of possession. In other words, the gospel that God owns. The gospel of God. God owns it. The gospel belonging to God. And the message is this. Paul says, I'm a slave of Christ. I'm called to be an apostle. I'm set apart for God's gospel. And the message is this. I'm not called upon to mess with it, alter it, dilute it, change it in any way. It's God's gospel. Woe be to the man who messes with it. What is that gospel? Verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God. I would say to any young preacher, you want the power of God in your ministry? Preach the gospel. The gospel doesn't give you access to the power of God. It is the power of God. It, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In other words, it doesn't matter what your nationality is. You can be Jewish, you can be from the Gentile race. There's only one race, by the way, the human race. But wherever it is you find your background, it doesn't matter. Salvation is to everyone who believes. And that is the good news of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It came first to the Jew. It's now going out to the Greek. And Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles are all brought into right standing with God on the basis of the one message. There's not two message, messages, one for the Jew, one for the Gentile. No, it's one message, the gospel. Verse 17, for in it, it being again the gospel, it, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther writes of this as this particular verse being the cause of his understanding what salvation really is and what the gospel was. He hated the word righteousness because he could never attain it. With all of his monkery, he could not get to perfection and God's standard was perfection. It was Jesus. 
who said, you must be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Not, I'd like it, but it's okay if you don't get there. No, you must. You must be perfect. You must be perfectly righteous. And so Luther, in his understanding, hated the word righteousness because God was going to judge him in righteousness and was looking for righteousness, but there was no righteousness found in Luther despite all that he did. He was plagued by this, truly plagued by this. In the last millennia, thousand years, what came to be known as the Tower experience of Luther might well be the most significant historical event in the Western world for all of the ramifications that ensued. Here are Luther's own words as he described what happened as he was studying Romans 1.17. He was reading that obscure article of Augustine where Augustine was saying something like this. The righteousness of God here is not the righteousness that God is demanding of us, but that it is being given to us which makes it the gospel. All the lights came on for Luther. Here are his words. I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience. And I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore I did not love a just, angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement, the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and would have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning and whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. End of quote. In the bulletin you should see a handout of Martin Luther regarding justification which is central in the gospel. And this is the uh, biblical doctrine that the moment someone has faith in Jesus Christ, God declares them just in his sight, justified in his sight. Before there's any improvement, before there's any work of holiness taking place, as they call upon the name of the Lord Jesus to save. He saves, and God declares that person just righteous in his sight, now and forever. It's not a probation. People get out of jail and they're on probation. Okay, you're out from the prison, but we're watching you. 
You violate the terms and you're back in here again. No. Justification is a courtroom word. And it is this declaration. The one who has faith in Jesus... Everything of Jesus' life, his righteousness, everything of Jesus' death, his death on behalf of sinners, counts for the one who calls on the name of the Lord. Why? Because on the cross of Jesus Christ, God laid on Jesus all the sins of all those who would ever believe. Isaiah put it this way, All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. On the cross, God laid our sin on Christ and He suffered and died in our place. That's only one of the transfers. Our sin to Christ. But what's transferred to us is the righteous life of Christ. Christ is the righteousness of the believer. 1 Corinthians 1.30 Jesus is made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification and redemption. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, He, God, made Jesus, made Him, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And on the basis of that, God declares the sinner right in His sight, now and forever. We can grow in holiness after that, and we will. The true Christian will. He has a heart for God now. God regenerates the heart and gives them a desire to walk uh, under the Word of God. To be trained by the Word of God and live under the principles of Christ. But none of those things give us a right standing with God. Faith in Jesus alone does that. Faith alone. So certain was Luther that he stood before emperors and all of the church's authority, and on penalty of death would stand for the truth of the gospel. He did it in many places on many occasions. He writes this, Whoever departs from the article of justification does not know God and is an idolater. For when this article has been taken away, nothing remains but error, hypocrisy, godlessness, and idolatry. Although it may seem to be the height of truth, worship of God, holiness, etc. If the article of justification is lost, all Christian doctrine is lost at the same time. When the article of justification has fallen, everything has fallen. Therefore it is necessary constantly to inculcate and impress it, as Moses says of his law. For it cannot be inculcated and urged enough. That's an encouragement to preachers. Always preach this. People might get bored. Preach it, preach it, preach it. What happens if they don't like it? Preach it, preach it, preach it. What happens if they say you're doing this too much? Preach it, preach it, preach it. It cannot be inculcated or urged enough or too much. Indeed, even though we learn it well and hold to it, yet there is no one who apprehends it perfectly or believes it with a full affection and heart. So very trickish is our flesh fighting as it does against the obedience of the Spirit. End of quote. My words, we all default to a workspace righteousness. Again, to quote Luther, this doctrine, justification by faith alone, is the head and the cornerstone. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, it being the doctrine of justification by faith alone, sola fide, without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. 
Later on he would say, justification by faith alone is the article of the standing or falling church. How about you? Where are you in this? Verse 17, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. What a blessing. Martin Luther was certainly a, an unusual man, a flawed man. I do not embrace everything he stood for, nor do I say, oh, there's anyone out there, I say, anything he says must be right. But Luther was a champion, standing for the truth of the gospel, as many did in that time. Rome today has not changed. In fact, the issues of the Reformation are even more divisive now than they were back then. Back then, there were no decrees about Mary that has to be believed de facto by Roman Catholics today. There was no declaration that the Pope was infallible. All of these things have been defined by Rome since the Reformation, the divide is even greater. It looks like a, a very friendly Pope, but if you go to the documents, the, none of them have been changed. And as recent as the, uh, recently as the Catholic Catechism, it affirms all of the doctrines outlined in the response of Rome to the Reformation, the Council of Trent, which I would say was a declaration against the Gospel itself. If anyone says that you're justified by faith alone, let him be anathema. That's it. That's the moment Rome became a false church. But in our day, there are different attacks on the Word of God, and it's not merely Rome. It's anyone who would interpret our Bibles to the degree that the Gospel is undermined. But in our day, there's also what we call a charismatic movement that says it's not merely the Word of God you read in your Bible, but the Word of God between your ears. And that's what we follow. I would say run for that. Run from that for your life. Nothing that ever happens between your ears or mine rises to the level of Scripture and authority. Only the Bible is the Word of God. And that was the first solar of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura. The Bible alone is the Word of God. And on the basis of what the Bible says come the other solas. If we read our Bibles and we say, the Bible alone speaks for God. Popes can speak, but they never speak with the authority of God. Theonoustos, inspired by God, never. God alone speaks with authority. And he has spoken to us in his word alone. Everything else let God be true and every man a liar. Every man. But I think, yes I know, and I've got my own thoughts, and I need as a Christian to bow my thoughts down to the authority of God, found in His Word. There's no other safe place. It is the place of safety. It is the place of knowledge. It is the place of nourishment. And it is the place of all authority. When God speaks, He does not turn His authority dial up 60% when he speaks between your ears. He only speaks with total authority, and that's what he's done in his word. That's what he's done. And on the basis of Scripture alone, we can say justification is by 
Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, all to the glory of God alone. All those five solas of the Reformation are in play because that's what the Bible teaches. You and I may not be called upon to die for our faith. Some of us might. Some may go to a foreign land and for the truth of the gospel have to lay our life down. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Something should happen in the heart and mind of any preacher when he mounts the pulpit is that he's there to please God, speak his word no matter what the consequences are. Someone could come in and watch a YouTube video, having watched it, and want to shoot the preacher. That's the problem with America. Nobody wants to shoot the preachers anymore. Because they're not preaching the gospel. They're preaching a man-made edifice to build their own kingdom. On the basis of the coming king in the kingdom, Paul wrote to Timothy, preach the word. I give you this solemn charge before God. You're under the gaze of God, preacher. You preach it. You don't dilute it. You are not someone who can mess with the food. You're like a waiter bringing what the cook has absolutely put on the plate and not saying they can't handle this. They can't handle that. They can't handle the spinach. They can't handle the carrots. They won't like it. No, you take what God has said and you put it before the people and the sheep will love it and they'll say, I want that next week and nothing else and I'll die for it. I want to hear my master speak to me. Goods and kindred go. These solas are not just historical relics of the past. The Reformation continues. Where are you in this Reformation? Here's where you and I need to start. Embrace the Christ of the Gospel. That Christ who is the second person of the Trinity, born of a virgin, living a sinless life, dying an atoning death on the cross, rising again from the dead, is now at the place of supreme and all authority in this universe. And he declares, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And he whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Lord Jesus, I have no righteousness of my own. I come to you. I turn to you. And God doesn't give you 50% and say, I'll see how you do. We'll deal with the rest later. No, on the basis of your faith in Christ, all that Christ is and all that he's done counts on your behalf. You go to God and you think, oh, I'm going to bring all my life before Him. But as a Christian, you look at the book and there are no blemishes recorded why they were laid on Christ. And you think, but I remember in 2004 I did this, in 2019 I did that, and just last week and even this morning I did this. But the moment you put your faith in Christ, you're cleansed from all your sins. And he'll never bring them up again. And you look on and you see just white pages, white pages, and then that's in the demerit section. And then you go to the merit section, you expect to find nothing there because the Bible says all our righteousness is like filthy rags. And you look in the merit section and it says all the deeds of Christ. No sin. All Christ? Yes, that's the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll forgive you your sin and give you righteousness as a gift. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed for those who embrace it by faith. 
So that it is a salvation from faith to faith, from faith from start to last, as one translation puts it. From first to last, we're justified by faith. You might be 30 years old as a Christian. You're no, you're no more advanced in righteousness than the moment you believe. Oh yes, you might be more holy. Oh yes, you might be more surrendered to Jesus. But in terms of your standing before God, now and forever, it's perfect because it's Christ's own perfection that you stand in. I tell you what, I've been around people that are on deathbeds. They don't want to hear about how many planks were in Noah's ark. They don't want to see another picture of Solomon's temple. They want to know, remind me of the gospel. This gospel, we should never be bored by it. It should excite our hearts so that every day we preach it to ourselves. Self, believe the gospel. Yeah, but I did this, I did that. But Christ did this and he did that. He lived for you. He died for you. And he is your standing before the Father. Remind yourself of this. If you've yet to come to him, repent and believe this good news. It does not matter what man and their tradition says. The Bible says, he who calls upon the name of the Lord might be saved. No. Has a good chance of it? No. Will be saved. Come to him on his terms. I'm a sinner in need of a saviour. Let me close with this. The author of the amazing hymn, Amazing Grace, once said these words. I'm old now, and my memory is fading, but I remember two things. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for what you did in history and we pray that you'll make history again even in our day, raising up reformers, not only preachers, but saints in our world and in this church that will believe you and be reformers, recalling people back to the once-for-all declared message of the faith, the gospel of God, the gospel belonging to God. Lord, we confess it's your gospel we take our hands off it. We say, I'll simply deliver it to the people that you might be glorified and that light may shine in darkness again. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.